At this time, the children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalms, chapter 18, verses 28 through 42. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like a feet of a deer and set my secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust with them through so that they were not able to rise and fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in my breast. Sorry. Turn two pages. They cried for help, but there was no one to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Yeah, thanks, Rory. Oh, man. Good morning. Today we are talking about one of the most famous stories in all of the Old Testament. It's legendary, this story is. Uh, Now, I don't have quantitative data to prove this, but in my estimation, this has to be one of the most recognizable stories in the Old Testament. Uh, It's right up there with Moses and the Ten Plagues, Noah and the Flood, Jonah and the Whale, and the Battle of Jericho. We're talking today about David and Goliath. Now, David and Goliath, just think about that for a second. David and Goliath. The second I say that, you don't need any explanation. You know the story. Everyone knows the story. In fact, the phrase, just those three words, David and Goliath, are so ingrained into our culture that we use the phrase David and Goliath in in ways that don't make any sense at all. Like when one sports team that's awesome is playing a less talented sports team, we we say it's David versus Goliath. When a mom-and-pop business is up against a big corporation, we say it's David versus Goliath. When we have a little army and a little country against a great big army, we say David and Goliath, right? Like we know what this is. We know this story. But in the fame and the glamour of David's victory over the giant, I think one thing that happens to us is we lose perspective on where the story of David and Goliath falls in the history of God's people. Now, just a second ago, I referred to it as a a legendary story. Now, when we think about legend, it implies fiction 
or maybe just exaggeration. When we think legend, it's usually because whatever story it is is so improbable that it seems impossible. And if it's impossible, then it must just be a legend. But what I love about our God is that he takes the impossible, he not only makes it probable, he makes it certain. And as God makes it certain, it's not a legend. He writes it into the history of his people as a fact. The story of David versus Goliath is indeed a historical fact that shows us God is in control and that he gets the glory for the victory rather than the victory, the, the victor, the obvious one, the one who is favored winning the battle and getting the glory. So when we see that David won this famous face-off, okay, our minds should be drawn to an undeniable fact. It is not David who should get the glory. It was not David's victory. The victory belonged to God. It is God who is at work in the redeeming story of his people. Now, David's rise in the history of Israel, God's people, comes at a pivotal time. So we've been talking about Saul for the last couple of weeks, right? And so with Saul as king, what we saw is that the people continued to do what was right in their own eyes. And because they continued to do what was right in their own eyes, trouble was on the horizon. They, they were getting ready to experience the consequences of their own sin and their own choices. And what they needed was deliverance. They needed deliverance from their own decisions, from their own choices, from these things that seemed, the, the consequences that came from doing things that seemed right in their own eyes. So over the last two weeks, we see that, that God has given his people into their desires, and he decided to let them have things their way. Now, we, we can't let ourselves think that God let them have their way because God was weak or because he agreed with them. The whole point of God turning them over to their desires was so that they could experience the fullness of the consequences of rejecting God. They wanted to be like all the other nations. So they said, let us have a king so that we can be like all these other nations. So God gave them Saul, but God equipped Saul for success. And he was constantly equipping Saul for obedience. But just like we saw in the people, Saul continued to do what was right in his own eyes. And so God decided that it was time to strip, strip Israel of her new king. Now remember, what did we learn about this king? That this king was a king of the people's choosing. And this king was never going to lead them where God wanted his people to go. So as we move through the book of 1 Samuel, when we find ourselves in the opening of chapter 16, Saul had just been informed that he was losing the kingdom. He had just blown it again. And so as, 
as we read about this king, remember his initial success was there, and we're kind of excited, and then we see him mess up. And then he doesn't really repent, right? I mean, he doesn't really repent much at all. And then he does it again. So as we come to this point, this king that was supposed to help them has failed. We should be sad. So if we're reading through the book of 1 Samuel, or we're living in the life of the people of Israel, when we get to this point in chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, we should be sad. We should feel the heaviness of the failure that has come on the people again. And God had rejected their king. We should feel that. It should be heavy as we turn the page to chapter 16. And God does something in verse 1 of 16. God steps in and God says it's time for a change. And as we move into chapter 16, we're introduced to a new king. And we should move from sadness at the close of chapter 15 into hope. Hope that this new king will not be like Saul. Hope that the outcome will be different for God's people. Listen to how this chapter 16 opens, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Do you see that? Do you feel the sadness there? How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Man, that verse is powerful. I I love that verse. This verse says God is active. He has come to do something. He says, listen, Saul had his opportunity, but don't grieve anymore. Don't be sad anymore. The people had their opportunity, but they could not see things, could not see things God's way. They could only see things their own way. So God says that he is going to step into history and place a king on the throne that he desires. Now God is acting. The last king Saul was what the people wanted. It's what their eyes saw. Now God says, it's my turn. You're getting the king I want. I'm putting a king on the throne for me, for my plan, and for my purposes. Right here in this one verse, we cannot lose this. We have to see it. God moves into the spotlight. He moves into the hero slot. He is a God who is active. It is God who is going to raise up a deliverer who will let all the people know that it is God who is working to save and love his people. Guys, we cannot be fooled. This new king is just a tool. The victory and deliverance belong to God. Now, I told you that the David and Goliath is a top five, top five most famous stories in the Old Testament, in my opinion. No quantitative data here. But another one that I mentioned was Moses and the Ten Plagues. And if we're not careful, we can make Moses the hero of the story. But how many plagues did Moses bring? Zero. 
God brought them all. They all came from the power of God. Who really delivered God's people from the hand of Egypt? Was it Moses? Not really. God worked through Moses to call his people out. We're going to have the same kind of thing happen here in the story of David. David gets to be a vehicle, a tool. But who is active? Who is the hero? And what we're going to see is that it is God who is the hero of the story. Can I get an amen? Okay. Now, from here, we know how the story goes. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I, as I thought and, and prayed through this sermon, I thought, I have an opportunity here. Just about everybody in this building has heard the story of David and Goliath a thousand times. So I don't need to just go straight through in a line. I want you guys to get your head around who David is, who David is, his character, the way the Bible describes him as we move into what is accomplished through the hands of David. So from here, we know how the story goes. In chapter 16, the guy who God chooses to be the next king is David. Now, David is described in chapters 16 and and 17 as an unlikely king. He's not only an underdog in the battle that we're going to see as he faces Goliath. He is also an underdog as a candidate for king. He is an underdog as a candidate for king. He's young. He's probably somewhere between ages 16 and 20. And what's interesting is, long before we ever get to his prowess on the battlefield, you know what the Bible spends the most time talking about David, about his skills? That he's a musician. Like, he's presented first and foremost as a musician. What are his skills? He's so good at music that he's actually recruited into the service of King Saul to help him with his fits of rage that he's experiencing. He's he's invited in because of these skills to help soothe the active king in Saul. And as far as job goes, it's not like he was a warrior. It's not like he was a politician or a mayor. He was a shepherd. So so who's this guy? he's, He's a teenager, most likely. He's a musician, and he's a shepherd. But still, we can see that Scripture is telling us that there is more to this boy than what we can see, remember that word see from last week, than what we can see from our first impression. All right, now, in addition to this idea of him being this, like, he's presented as a cute shepherd boy who kind of gives off this uh, artist vibe, uh, that's who he is, right? Uh, Chapter 17 also gives a a bit of, maybe maybe David was a bit of a bratty teen, because his brothers, sure as the world didn't think very highly of him, So David's big brothers, as we move into chapter 17, we're going to jump around. They're on the battlefield. They're across the valley from the Philistine army that had gathered to oppose Israel. All right? Now, David's dad had sent him to the battlefield to bring supplies to his brothers. And when he gets there, what happens? Goliath, the giant, comes out from the ranks of the Philistines and challenges Saul's forces to single combat. He basically says, all right, this is a one-on-one scenario. Winner take all. If I win... You guys serve us. If you win, we'll serve you. Okay, so this this is kind of going on. And when David sees this and hears all this, he starts asking about it. He starts asking the other soldiers, what's going on? What's going on with all this stuff with this giant? Why, Why are people allowing this to happen? Now, but when David's brothers hear about David asking around about the giant, they look on the outside of things, right? They look on the outside of things, and they see their brother, 
and they begin to assume the worst about David. The oldest brother seems to assume that David is just a bratty kid coming out to the battlefield to be amused. Listen to the way that David's older brother, Eliab, uh, reacts to David in verse, chapter 17, verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and your evil heart. You have come down to see the battle. What does brothers think of him? They did not exactly have the highest of opinion of David. On the outside, Eliab calls out David's integrity, his motivation. He even calls him basically lazy, saying he's trying to get out of work, not being in the fields with, his, with the sheep. Like, this is a... I have two big brothers, neither of which are in this room today. Like, this is kind of mean. And if my brother said something like this to me, I'd have been like, you jerks. I mean, like, really? This is what you think of me? This is not exactly a ringing endorsement. Okay, so, so th- th- they, uh, they, they, they kind of think their brother is a punk teenage boy. But as we move deeper into chapter 17, David goes on from merely offering hypotheticals about what would happen to the man who defeated Goliath, and, and he's pulled into Saul's court, and he has the opportunity to vie for the, uh, the chance to fight Goliath. And as David evaluates himself, he doesn't see himself as some uh, uh, bratty, emotional teenage boy, okay? David sees himself as every bit of the man that his brothers are who are on the battlefield. Listen, listen to how David describes himself to King Saul as he's trying to earn the right to fight Goliath. Chapter 17, verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. I mean, are you guys listening to that? Okay, he would catch these things by their beards. Like, now we're assuming he hit them once and they're a little dazed, but they came up after. I mean, one-on-one, teeth, and struck them and kill them. Now, I just want you to see something here. We're talking about lions and bears. And then there's an S on the end of the word. Lions, bears. This happened often. Where are they? Like, move to a different pasture, right? Okay, so this guy is described as a musician and also someone who can kill a bear and lion with his bare hands. So he's the kind of guy who can kill you in battle and then write a hit single about it. Okay? Now, this this is who we are are seeing here as a king. And and what's interesting is he had had this reputation. Other people had observed this. And and so before he's recruited in to work for Saul back in chapter 16, uh, they're looking for somebody who could play music to soothe King Saul, one of the men says this about David. It says this, 
uh, chapter 16, verse 18. One of the young men in, in Saul's court answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, guys, what I want you to see here is that David is no slouch, okay? He's not like bottom of the barrel, all right? But he's hardly a match for the description of Saul. Now, remember, when we think about Saul, it was all about what's on the outside. And what do we know about Saul? That he stood uh, a head taller than everyone else. And uh, Samuel even says of Saul that no one could compare to Saul. That's pretty high outward praise. And then we think about David. David's just a guy. Now, he's a talented, capable, handsome guy. He's a beast of a man in his own right. But when you look at him, you thought useful. You thought helpful. You thought capable. You did not think stately, royal, or a future king. When we look at chapter 16, Samuel is still, even Samuel is still caught looking on the outside. So when Samuel comes to Jesse's home and the brothers are brought to him to see which one of Jesse's sons might be the next king, even Samuel's first thought is to look on the outside. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 says, When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God did not choose any of the first seven sons of Jesse. He chose the one that Jesse's family looked over. I want you to think about that. All right, which one of my sons is going to be king? It's got to be one of the first seven. Odds are pretty good, right? So how does the, the passage continue? Look at verse 11 and following. It says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes. Now, just put your finger there at the end of 11. Now, like, I know how our brains work. Just text him, right? He's probably out back. He'll be in in five. That's not how it worked. He was probably a couple of hills away. This probably took many hours. So they had to go hunt him down. They didn't have GPS. Okay? And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, as we've talked about the selection of David as king, one verse is supposed to stick out to us. And, and I skipped it until now, but, but I don't want us to miss it. I, I skipped it for emphatic purposes, okay? It's probably one of the most famous verses in the book, uh, the books of First and Second Samuel. It's this. It comes from chapter 16, verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height, 
or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Now, who's he talking about here in this rejection? That's Eliab, the oldest son. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, David is a capable guy. He is an underdog story, though. He's capable, but he is still an underdog story. Not just in the face-off against Goliath, but from the standpoint that no one was looking to David to lead. No one. No one was counting on David for anything except for tending the sheep. But God was going to use this young man to accomplish God's plan and God's purpose for God's glory. So all throughout this story, God is maneuvering David. Samuel came and anointed David as king in secret, right? God moved David into Saul's court to be a royal musician. And he placed David's brothers on the battlefield in a way that that young David had a reason to come to the battlefield and start, honestly, talking a little trash about the Philistines, right? And even in that, somehow, the, the, the conversations that this young man had got all the way back to Saul so that Saul summons David back to his court to ask him what he was planning on doing if David had a plan on fighting this giant. The scriptures are showing us that David is a man after God's own heart and that God is the one who does not look on the outside of things. The surface image means very little to the Lord. And what we see as we look closely at chapter 17 is that the outside image of things meant very little to David either. What we see in the story of David and Goliath is not some long shot finding an unconventional way to win. What we see is that David's superpower is that he knows that God is going to win no matter what. What's his superpower? Listen, uh, recently I've been on this Malcolm Gladwell kick where I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks by Malcolm Gladwell, and he has this one called David and Goliath. And the opening sequence is this historical view of what actually happened with David and Goliath. And he starts giving this breakdown about how Goliath probably had some disease, and that's why he was so big, and blah, blah, blah. And that what David did is he came at him with unconventional warfare, and that's how he won. And he starts describing this as, all right, when the battle says do this and you're going to lose, then change the plan. And then he wrote this whole book about how what we've got to do is change the plan. And what blows my mind is this is not a story about how David changed the plan. This is a story about how everything on the outside said that Goliath should win. Now, I skipped the part, but if you go through chapter 17, they start listing all his armor. They start listing everything that he's got on, his weapons and his, 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 uh, the spear and all this stuff. And you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, he is the human equivalent of a tank. And David's just a boy. He doesn't stand a chance. But David is not the one fighting the battle. And that is what we have to realize as we look at this story. Yes, it's an underdog story. But at the same time, it is not an underdog story. I want you guys to see the way that David talks about how the battle belongs to the Lord. 
All right, so we read about this thing where David's killing uh, animals with his bare hands, and we're super impressed. Now let's continue on in that story as this you know, beast killer goes on in verse 36. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And, and so I put a little dot, dot, dot there, right? And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. Put your finger right there. Defiled the armies of the living God. Not Saul's army. Not the armies of Israel. Where's his focus? It's on the Lord. Whose army is this? Who has Goliath defied? God and God's army. Now, how's it, how's it go on? Verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, who got the credit for the beast slaying that, that David had done? All right, in this... He doesn't take glory or credit for the fact that the man killed bears and lions with his bare hands. He says, no, God gets the glory for that. And as I go out and fight Goliath, it's not about what I can do as a soldier. It's not about what I can do as a fighter. You know how I defeated these bears and lions? I did it by the power of God at work in me, around me, blessing me. Who won? God did. And if he was with me as I fought the bears and the lions, he will be with me as I go out and face Goliath. Now, how does the story go? Let's look at it, starting in verse 40, look, looking through 51. It says, Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with the shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Now, put your finger there in verse 42. What's, what's the Philistine focusing on? The outside, the way things looked. Carry on. All right. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, this should, get, this should get you excited. Okay? This should undo the sadness that you feel at the end of chapter 15. He says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Man, I love this. That's, that's why we read from that psalm earlier that was really kind of gross, um, because that's what happens here, man. Like, heads roll, literally. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Man, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead, 
and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When David ran, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Who gets the glory for that battle? God does. Who delivered the Philistines into David's hand? God did. Man, when you you look at, at the story in light of what we've seen so far, who is the hero of the story? It is God. It is not David. And when we realize that God is the hero of the story, then this isn't an underdog story at all. If God is the hero, then he always wins. Can I get an amen? He always wins. God will always bring about his plan and his purpose. God did not write this story into his people's history so they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and summon strength to defeat a superior opponent. This story is to show how reliance on our own strength and ability will leave us ill-equipped to face our enemies. It's all about dependency on God. When they were relying on their own strength, they were terrified. Chapter 17, verse 24 tells us that the people of Israel fled, the same word fled, in fear from Goliath. But after God defeats the giant through David, we see at the end of verse 51 that this time, Philistines are the ones who are fleeing. That's amazing. Do you see how that that flips? When they're focused on the outside, they're afraid. When they look out there and see the giant, now I just thought this was interesting. How is Saul described? Head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Who are they putting their trust in? Somebody who's tall. Who opposes God's people? A giant. Just think about that for a second. All their focus was on what this, the size of this guy. And in that moment, they forget the size of their own God. And so they run and hide in fear from Goliath. But when God shows up making his bigness present in the life of little David, then the people have confidence, and it is the Philistines who flee. And it is God's people who pursue the Philistines across the countryside. Is that not amazing? I love this story. All of this is pointing us to the fact that we should see that God is at work. God is the one who is at work protecting his people, putting forward his anointed, his anointed, his choice, his selection, one who is dependent on God the Father, for victory. I had us read from Psalm 18 for a reason. I want you to see the way David thinks about battle. Now, this is probably written years after David fought Goliath, probably during some other war, but he had to have drawn on this battle even as he wrote uh, this this psalm in Psalm 18. We're just going to look at verse 31 through 37. It says this, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. 
He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand has supported me. Your gentleness has made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I love this psalm because it clearly gives God all the glory for David's success. Who gave David strength? God did. Who made his way blameless? Who gave him sure footing? Who trained him for battle? Who was his shield? Who was his support? Who made him great? It was God who did all these things. And because all of this was God's doing in the background, God is the one who gets all the credit for David's success and all of his victories over David's enemies. Man, does that not describe a man after God's own heart? What's his superpower? His superpower was his faith, his belief that God has done it and he can do it again. A belief that God is going to achieve his own glory. A belief that God is going to save. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting about the story of David, and, and, and we, we went down this road, and we started in, in the life of David two weeks ago, even though we just met David today. Uh, when we started this, uh, we talked about how in Luke, Jesus is presented as what? The son of David. Now think about the ministry of Jesus. He is the new and better David. He is the new and better king. And is he not an unlikely king? The son of a carpenter born in a small village? Somebody who grew up poor? Is he not an unlikely king? And yet what do we see throughout the ministry of Jesus? He is totally dependent on the father. And God is working in his son, his one and only son, Jesus, to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to forgive sins, to have the victory, to bring glory to the Father, and to deliver his people again. Now, where David is going to rise up as a deliverer from the Philistines, we see something greater in the life of Jesus. Jesus is one who is a king like none other, who doesn't deliver us from a physical enemy, specifically like the Philistines, but he delivers us from our sin and the death that that deserves. Now think about this, okay? Think about uh, the, the, uh, David and how, how David had to depend on something greater than himself for salvation. I'm reminded of, of David comes into the court of Saul, and we skip this part, but Saul puts all this armor on David so that David might look the part of the soldier. Again, you see in the look, look the part of the soldier. And David says, I can't do this. I can't wear these. I haven't tested them. I haven't used them for battle. But David says what? David says, I have trusted the Lord. I have tested the Lord. He will be my armor. I will trust in that as I go into battle. He puts it outside of himself. We have an opportunity as followers of Jesus, the one true king, 
who was able to do it all. If we tried to make ourselves right before God in our own strength, it would be just like David trusting in that armor. That armor will fail. He has called us to trust in him the way that David trusted in God. Just like God is the one who defeated the giant, it is the work of Jesus Christ that defeats the sin in our life. Left in our own strength, we will fail. We will never be able to save ourselves from sin. But just like God delivered his people through the hands of David, our God has delivered us from our sin through Jesus Christ, his son. That by his death and resurrection, we may have new life. That we may be dead to our old sin, forgiven and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. You see how David gets to point us to Christ. How David delivers his people from the Philistines and Christ in an even greater way delivers us from sin and death. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the way that you have made us dependent on you. We thank you for David's tangible example of what trusting you looks like. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to trust you for our salvation, but more, not more importantly, but, but almost as importantly, Lord, we see David trust you for obedience, obedience that was scary. Lord, I pray that as we think about how we trust you with our eternal life, we might trust you for obedience in our daily life as well. Help us, Lord, not to miss the fact that you have something for us in this life as we walk forward in obedience to bring you glory and not our self-glory. Help us, Lord, to see what you're calling us to and give us the boldness and the faith to walk forward in obedience. It's in your name I pray. We're moving into our response time. This is our chance to respond to the Lord. And my question to you is this. What is God calling you to have faith in? What are those difficult circumstances he set before you where you cannot win on your own? Where he's asking you, calling you to be dependent on him. As we're dependent on him and find ourselves humble and in a place of vulnerability, we put ourselves in a position for God to get the victory, for God to get the glory. Where is he working in your hearts and lives? So wherever that may be, now's the time to surrender that to him. Or if you're here and you have been fighting so long for your own salvation, what I hope you can see is that Jesus has already won the victory for us. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you can come and talk to me or one of your brothers and sisters in Christ sitting next to you. However God is working, use this time to listen to him.